Welcome to the AWP podcast series. This event was recorded at the 2016 AWP conference in Los Angeles. The recording features Stephen Elliott, Jennifer Gilmore, Jenny Halper, Eleanor Henderson, and Cheryl Strade. You will now hear Eleanor Henderson provide introductions. Hello. Hi there, everybody. Welcome to Adapting to Adaptation. Thank you so much for coming here and for choosing our panel to spend a little bit of time with. I'm Eleanor Henderson, and I'll be your moderator as well as a member of this panel. And in a few minutes, I'll ask our other panelists to introduce themselves and their work in relation to the adaptations um, that they've been involved with. And because this is a panel about movies, I thought that it would be worthwhile to share a little bit of multimedia with you so that you can um, at least see the trailers of the movies based on the books by these authors to give you a little bit of context in case you're not familiar with them. So I wanted to do this panel in part for selfish reasons because while the author's experience of adaptation is a privileged one, it's also a very, very strange one um, and sometimes an alienating one. And I wanted to connect with other writers who've gone through that same initiation. At the same time, it's no longer an entirely rare experience. More and more writers, at least it seems to me, are seeing their work adapted into or at least optioned for film and increasingly also television. And it occurred to me that it might be useful to help create a kind of common guidebook for adaptation, the kind of advice and insight that I wish I had gotten at the beginning of this process. This might be a confusing or even contradictory panel because as far as I can tell, no two paths to adaptation are the same. And we on this panel represent a really dramatic range of experiences where novelists and memoirists, satisfied customers and unsatisfied customers who have been involved with the production of our movies to varying degrees and who have felt both enriched and at times diminished by adaptation, sometimes both at once, but I hope that for all of its contradictions, this panel will give you greater insight into both how an adaptation gets made or not made and how to make the most of the experience as an author. So after we introduce ourselves, we'll talk about those questions and then we'll spend at least 15 minutes at the end on your questions. Okay. So Cheryl Strade probably does not need a lot of introduction, but I'll ask her to introduce herself. I'm on. Hi, I'm Cheryl Strade, and my book, Wild, was adapted for film. So Wild was published in March of 2012, and it was completely done, copy edited, ready to go for more than a year before that. And so I had a lot of time to sort of sit around wait, waiting for my book to come out. And a few months before it was published, I just had this idea, like, well, I wonder if anyone in Hollywood would be interested in it. And very quickly, my literary agent put me in touch with a film agent, Sherry Smiley. And Sherry Smiley said, you know, Reese Witherspoon has just formed, she's, she's you know, come together with this producer, Bruno Papandrea, and they are forming a production company with the explicit goal of finding books and stories that feature in Hollywood, they call them complex women. In my life, I call them women. Um, because I actually don't know one woman who is not complex, right? Nor do I know one man who isn't complex. But in Hollywood, we're, those are still complicated women. And so I thought, well, I'm complex, and so here's my book. And so it was literally like a Friday, 
and she she was given an advanced reading copy of my book, and she read it over the weekend. And Monday morning, I was sitting in Portland. Pam Houston, my friend, the writer Pam Houston, was visiting me at the time, and my cell phone rang, and it was my agent. And she said, Reese really wants to you know, talk to you because she really wants to option the, the book for film. And so we got on the phone soon after that, and it was just me and Reese in, in a, like an hour-long conversation uh, I wanted to hear from her, you know, what, what she made of the book, what she understood about the book, and what a translation to film might look like. And, you know, we really just connected from the very beginning on a very personal level. And she promised me that she would honor the story. And, and I also, from that very first conversation, you know, said, I want you to honor the story. I also want you to make you know, I understood that the film had to stand on its own two legs, that my book was my creation and, and the film would not be a performance of my book, but rather its own, its own piece of art, you know. And so the director and the actors and all the people who make a movie had to invest in it in that way. And that's what happened. So from there forward, we proceeded. And I can, you know, later in the, the hour that we have talk more about, like, how then that went from that first idea, that first conversation, to how the film actually got made. But I think I'll leave it at that for now. Okay, great. So I'm just going to um, play the short trailer of, of Wild so you guys have it fresh in your heads. If your nerve deny you, go above your nerve. Emily Dickinson and Cheryl Strait. Sorry, you have to walk a thousand miles just to finish that sentence. Why do I have to walk a thousand miles? Happy trail, Cheryl. You get lonely. I'm lonelier in my real life than I am out here. Must have been some breakup, huh? Breakup is sort of a shorthand. How much do I love you? I miss you. God, I miss you. My mother was the love of my life. You're using heroin, and you're having sex with anyone who asks. Quit marriages. You regret any of them? I didn't have a choice. There's never been a time when there was a fork in my road. Here's some questions I've been asking myself. What if I forgive myself? What if I was sorry? But if I could go back in time, I wouldn't do a single thing differently. What if all those things I did were the things that got me here? I always get so choked. I still get choked up when I see that. Um, no, yeah, you, yeah, always when I see that, and then also you know the first chapter of the book also always with the mom. Yeah, so I had a 
I had what I came to realize later was actually a really unusual experience of having my movie made because I'm also in a weird position of knowing a lot of memoirists who have had their memoirs made into movies. Anthony Swafford, you, Nick Flynn, you know, Tobias Wolf, Susan Orlean, all these people. So James Franco bought or optioned the rights to the Adderall Diaries when it first came out for $2,500, so not a lot of money for 18 months. It took a long time. Uh, it was his first book that he optioned. I made two movies before he finally <laughs> made it, all basically to show him that it could be done uh, quicker. <laughs> and the experience, it's, it like should have been like really negative in a way because unlike all the authors I know who have had these movies made, I wasn't consulted at all. I mean, like, completely shut out of the process. They were shooting the movie in my neighborhood, and I was not allowed on set. Not just, like, not invited, but not allowed. Like, told I couldn't come on set. And I was like, okay, you know, whatever your process is, you know, like, whatever makes the actors comfortable. When, when they'd done shooting the movie, they were having test screenings. I was getting calls from people, like, oh, I just saw your movie in a test screening. And so I asked if they would like me to watch it and give them feedback. They're like, no. No, we don't think so. And then... Uh, the movie itself was actually fairly, you know, I mean, it was, it was not accurate to the book in, in ways that I think actually took from the movie. But I mean, like, I was just seeing this part the other day where, like, James Franco was giving a reading from my, my book, right? And it's like, he's not even reading from my book. They rewrote the book that he's reading from, which is, like, not necessary to the plot in any way. And it's so bad, this book that he's reading from, you know? And people think he's reading from my book. You know, my book's all about this weird relationship with my father and how we both had our own truth. And, and the movie's all about one person telling the truth and one person's a liar. And that's just how it is. Everything's real cut and dry. And so it should be this, like, you know, terrible experience. But actually, it's been, like, a great experience because, um, you know, I bought a house with the money that they gave me to make the movie. I've sold a lot of books. And also, it, like, inspired me to write, uh, write and direct a third movie my own movie about James Franco making a movie about me. <laughs> and it's not a mean movie. I mean, I'm not, I'm really not mad. I mean, it's like, like when, I can't even describe it, but inspiration is a huge gift. I mean, nothing has come out of the movie that hasn't been positive, even though I felt it was a very negative representation of myself. The experience has been only positive. Like, nothing bad has come from it, even in this weird, uh, unusual way. So, yeah, that's been my... Uh, experience with having a movie made. So we'll show the trailer for the movie that Stephen made at the end of our segment, but now I want to show the trailer for Adderall Diaries, which is coming out next month, is that right? It's out on, it's out on video on demand already. Out. Okay, yeah. you can But it's find coming it. out in theaters next month. Okay. What happens to us makes us who we are. Wave to daddy. Best. We're hiding with your replacement family. That's not true. 
Remember this? Total this Mustang. It's just not how I remember it. Because you have a convenient way of remembering things. All the anger, all the hatred. It's a hell of a drug. My son, ladies and gentlemen, the storyteller, what a joke. You people are all fools. You deserve to be played. Falling for this nonsense. A father does what he has to do to protect his children. If you understand that, you understand everything. You want to kill me so bad? Hit me! Come on, hit me! What are you looking for? The truth. Does it make you cringe, or is it? It's kind of cool. It's a little weird. I mean, they, they quote me, but it's like this: the quotes are always off by a few words and not quite elegant. And I'm like, I don't understand why. But no, that was cool. Did I really what? FaceTime with your publisher? No, I did not really. I don't FaceTime with anybody. I don't even know how to FaceTime. The book wasn't a bestseller, actually, either. So hello. Even the blurb wasn't accurate. I know this isn't the subject of our panel, but I'm always curious about this, like, everything's like a best-selling book. And I'm like, really, was it? Like, what, what's the, yeah. <laughs> so um, my novel is called 10,000 Saints. It came out in 2011. And um, for a year or two, I was talking with several different filmmakers, two different filmmakers, and their interests waned when I couldn't attach a studio to the project. So there was a promising moment where I was talking with Harpo Studios and the director, Catherine Hardwick, and it looked like they would be able to make the movie and they didn't. So I'd had a couple of times where I'd already become disappointed and learned that movies are hard to make in Hollywood. And then in late 2012, the filmmakers, uh, Sherry Springer Berman and Robert Pulcini, who are the director's screenwriter couple who did American Splendor, they optioned the movie along with Maven Pictures, which came along um, a little bit later in the process with Jenny and Archer Gray. And so I, I learned not to get my hopes up too high, but I had a nice meeting with them and um, sort of chatted about who we would want to appear in the movie, including Ethan Hawke. And then I didn't hear anything, sort of radio silence for a year. And then somebody tweeted something, Haley Steinfeld set to star in 10,000 Saints. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. And like five seconds later, my phone rang and my agent filled me in and said, yeah, they're going to start filming next month. So from that point, it moved forward very quickly. And they were casting the movie very quickly. It filmed early in 2014 um, during a very snowy month in New York City. And I was able to be on set and experience what I could of, of, um, of the production and then took another year or so to make the film in, in post-production and then premiered at Sundance last year and, and appeared in theaters last year. Um, so that's my short story. There's the movie version, and here's the trailer. Hey. What are you doing here, Dad? Come to kidnap you. Taking you to the Big Apple. Why would I go with you? I'm offering you Manhattan, champ. Don't play hard to get. Hey. Hey. You got any 
New Year's resolutions. Stop dating my dealer. Why would you do that with me? You get the whole package, sex and drugs. How do you like it so far, Neil? Music's great. What kind of music do you listen to? Hardcore, straight edge. What does it sound like? Have you ever heard of punk? Darling, I'm from England. <laughs> hey, Johnny. It's Jude. He made it out of Vermont, buddy. You still play, don't you? What are you writing? It's just some lyrics for a song. Is it about a girl? You seem so different. You're just gonna play father now? No, I'm not judging. I mean, I met your mom at an orgy. Do you have any idea what I'm going through? I don't know what to say. Maybe you do too. You just won't. It's all part of my master plan. These are tips that you need to learn on your way to manhood. Understood? Understood. This is about as far as I'll go. It's too dangerous. Oh, thanks, Dad. No, don't worry. You'll be fine. Shoot! Run! Run! watching that still. All right. Jennifer. Hi. So for any of you writers out there who have had your books optioned, I'm like your usual experience, which is when I, when I was supposed to be on this panel, we thought my movie would be made by now, but that has not happened. So I, I'll explain a little bit of the process. It's actually very unusual in a lot of ways. I'm a teacher. And I had a student who kept showing up to one of my classes. She was a wonderful fiction writer, and she like would look like she rolled out of bed. And we'd come to class late all the time. And it turns out she was this um, executive at Maven Pictures. And she, <laughs> and she optioned my book before it came out. She said, I hear you have a book called The Mothers coming out about adoption. We really want to do a movie about adoption. So that was kind of exciting. And she worked tirelessly. And what's been unusual for me is that the players have been kind of the same from the beginning. Rachel Weiss was signed on very early on, and that was really exciting and wonderful. It's a novel that's a little bit autobiographical, and I also write a lot of nonfiction about it that they're using. Um, so it's, it's a novel, but it's sort of interesting because, you know, it's a little bit about me as well. But in any case, and we had a screenwriter who came back with a script that was not necessarily the tone of the book and wasn't what I think Rachel Weiss had in mind. So she asked me to rewrite it, and I rewrote it with Jenny, and that was really exciting and interesting and instructive. And so it's been going from there, you know. And this was three years ago, and three years ago we had all the elements in place. We had a director, we had Rachel Weiss, we had a script, and we had funding. And here we are. So I'm confident that it will get made, but it hasn't happened yet. Uh, that said, it's been really interesting to be so involved with the process. I know that's kind of unusual in this. I mean, I think of. It's not that unusual, I think. I think it's more unusual to not be involved. 
I don't know. I mean, to be like loft out of the set is and not yeah, <laughs> that seems crazy. Right, right. They're layers. So, and it's been interesting to rewrite the script as well, and 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 be involved in that process. But yeah, you you know more about what's going on with it than I do. So I will s- turn it over to to Jenny, who's also adapting her own her own stuff as well. Yeah. So, and it's actually interesting for me to hear all of your experiences, and then to also hear that you didn't know about Ten Thousand Saints till it was, um, till Haley Seinfeld was a teeny, which is interesting. Yeah. Um, but so, so I work at a company called Maven Pictures. I've worked there for six years. I went to grad school actually for fiction writing, but I was also doing a lot of like film journalism, sort of at the point when film journalism was becoming more blogging. And it, but I've always been super interested in adaptations, and the company that I work for is involved in projects both at the very end stage. So like with Eleanor's book, there was a cast, there was a director, there was a script, and we and they needed some money, so we put in some money because we really liked the project. And then there are other projects where we come in very early on, like Jennifer's, where I was a student of hers, and I she had talked about the book a bit, and I thought that it's, there hadn't been a movie about the adoption process that sounded the way Jennifer's did. And then I read her book, which was this really beautiful novel about this this couple that are trying to adopt a baby and how the difficulties in that adoption process bring them closer together as a couple. And then also, in addition to finding a child, really have their eyes open to race and class as they meet these different birth mothers. And I, I just thought that the idea of the adoption process as this terrain that is eye-opening and just very complicated, but also ultimately, like, there's a lot of growth in this couple and these and this main character was really fascinating. And so I, I'm going to say it was about three years ago I called Jennifer up, and it was I think it was right before the book was published, which is the timeline, and I said that, that we were interested. And then about six months later, we got Rachel Weiss attached, which was really exciting, and that, that essentially happened because I, I sent the book to her, her English agent because I figured the Brits probably read faster. Um, <laughs> and her agent had read it and loved it, and about a month after that, Rachel sat down with my boss and I and was just so clearly passionate about the material and was very instrumental in kind of, you know, helping us decide what filmmakers we wanted to go out to, helping us decide which screenwriters. And it was kind of a, a great process and a learning process for me as well, but just really interesting to have somebody who's that talented and also just like such a force in film um, really wanting to be involved in how do we take this book and make it into a movie. Um, and then there's just a lot of a lot of twists and turns along the way. We had a, a filmmaker who was fantastic who ended up getting a studio movie, and so we were waiting for him. And then we decided, do we look at other directors? And then, you know, Rachel got another movie, and so she's, you know, very, very eager to do it. So we're waiting for her schedule to open up. So there's just a lot of things that can can go right and go wrong and go right and go wrong, and, and the process is a long one. I mean, I've always sort of likened it to having come from the, the world of prose, like a perfect page of writing, you need every word right, and to get a perfect movie, you need those many things to go right, except there's usually ten, like 100 decision makers, and so the chances are a little bit slimmer. But, so I mean, I guess that's, that's essentially mm-hmm. the, the road that we've taken, and we had a screenwriter who, like from her pitch, had a great tone, and she did a great job with the structure of the screenplay, but we just weren't getting it to the point where we wanted it to be, and so Jennifer, and I work together, and, and I'm very proud of the script that we have and are talking to a couple of extremely interested filmmakers and, and hopefully shooting early next year. So that's my process on Jens. And then there's a short story that I, I've also been working on by a, an amazing writer named Laura Vandenberg that I had just loved forever and optioned it about two years ago and have a script 
that we've got an, an amazing Australian director attached to you and are looking to shoot that next April. And that was a different process and that I, I kind of just did it on my own and wrote the script and so there weren't a lot of players involved until the script was done. It was kind of, it was going at it from a different angle. Yeah. But I'm still horrified that you didn't know about <laughs> 10,000 Saints. Well, you, like yeah. I sort of didn't want to ask, you know, yeah. like you just don't, for me it was like you, after being disappointed a couple times, it was like, okay, nobody touch anything, you know, yeah. just don't, nobody, don't pick up my phone, you know. But, but I felt okay about it. I sort of felt like I was holding my breath and that knowing, I, I'm not quite sure if maybe knowing a little bit more might have been reassuring. And Sherry did tell me yeah. that Ethan was attached during that window. Yeah. So, but, but still, what did that mean? Right? And I think he had loved the book is what I heard, right? That, like, I think before the script came in, like, his wife was reading the his book. His wife had read like, the book, yeah. Yeah. His wife had read the book. So I knew yeah. that there were, you know, that there were some rumblings, but I didn't know that it was going to be a real thing. I didn't know the green light had happened. No. So I wanted to share a couple of quotes uh, from other writers who have gone through this process as a way to, uh, as a sort of springboard for our conversation. And one of them is from uh, Annie Prue, who wrote Brokeback Mountain, the short story, which was adapted into a beautiful film. And she says, it's an eerie sensation to see events you have imagined in the privacy of your mind and tried hopelessly to transmit to others through little black marks on a page loom up before you in an overwhelming visual experience. I realized that I, as a writer, was having the rarest film trip. My story was not mangled, but enlarged. Here it was, the point that writers do not like to admit. In our time, film can be more powerful than the written word. So I'm wondering if you guys can relate to that idea um, of feeling your, your book enlarged. Yeah. Yes and no. I, I think that the thing that, that literature does best is interiority. You get to be inside the, the mind of the character. And you get to know things that only... I mean, really, it's such a portal into another person's mind and life. And in film, you know, one of the challenges, I think, so I, I sort of skipped over, I didn't describe, you know, what happened to, to Wilde on the way to production, but uh, Nick Hornby came on board to be the scriptwriter. Reese and Bruna felt pretty passionately that they, don't, they didn't believe that a writer should adapt her own memoir. They were really adamant that, like, that it just, that... You know, I was too busy to write the script anyway, but they even said, you know, we wouldn't have hired you because they feel like you need some distance. So Nick Hornby came on and wrote the script, but I was really involved. I was given draft by draft and weighed in mightily uh, along the way. And then also, you know, once we had done the shoot, the director sent me cut by cut of the film, and we would have these long Skype sessions, not FaceTime, Skype, and um, <laughs> talk about... You know, I would tell him what I thought of the film. And that was one of the challenges, is that because so much of Wild is me telling you what I was thinking as I was walking along a trail, the, the challenge was how to convey that on the, the screen without it being diminished. And so I think, you know, the, the movie is in some ways larger. I think there's a way that you can see the natural landscape um, that I describe you know, it's hard to beat the film. You, you, you see those vast mountains and deserts and so forth. But on the other hand, when it comes to the emotional life, I think that the wild, the film is deeply emotional. And I think it achieved a lot. And one of the most interesting things to me has been getting so much email from people who have only seen the film and not read the book and that they have the same emotional response to the film as they do the book. They say the same things to me about the film as they do the book. So that's an achievement. But I do think that there's more to the story. You know, I think if you want the whole story, you have to read the book. And so in some ways it was enlarged and in other ways diminished. 
by the phone. Yeah, when uh, I was asked to come into a meeting with James Franco about this movie, and I showed up, and it was like these two students, and he was calling in on a speakerphone, and, and the speakerphone rang, and he said, okay, these, are this, these people are going to make your movie. They're going to write and direct. And I was like, students? This is a student film? I don't think The Adderall Diaries is as good as the book at all, but I do think that it's not uncommon. I mean, The Godfather is better. The movie is a lot better than the book and has a, actually has a lot more. I mean, The Godfather is a terrible book. And then, like, but then there's movies like The English Patient where it's like a great book and it's a great movie and they're entirely different. Yeah. There's no relationship almost between the two. But also, you know, I've writ to, written and directed two movies and I always had this idea that like a script or a piece of writing was like 100. And then when you make it, you know, it becomes an, a, a best case scenario. It's an 80 or an 85. It's always diminished. But once I started working with actors and you had the experience of like an actor reading your line back to you and making it better than it was when it was written... And I just felt like my heart swell in my chest. I was like, oh, that's what love is. It's just the most incredible experience. And you realize a movie can actually be significantly better than the writing that it's, that it's based on, you know. I guess the one thing, I mean, that I'll add is I think that the best adaptations are like companion pieces to the book and you want them to kind of exist together and be different. Yeah. I like, like, I think Wild is... is an incredible adaptation and feels like it captures the heart of your story, but it's, yeah. it has differences. And English Patient, too. And I think Room this past year did that really, yeah. really well. I think there are so many amazing adaptations that you're kind of richer from reading and seeing and then just thinking about the differences and how they, they can coexist. Yeah, I think that yeah. companion pieces, that's the way I think of. I mean, yeah. I love the movie, and I think it honors the book. And, and But I think that you're going to get a slightly different experience in each, for sure. I mean, I just want to say the thing about writing novels or memoirs, it's like this, the, it, what, all we have as prose writers is inner lives, right? That's what yeah. we can offer that, that the, the movie can't. And something like The Godfather, which is episodic, of course works better on film. Yeah. So when you have something that's episodic and has an internal life, that, you know, th- those can meet really well cinematically. But, um, yeah, I think read together is the perfect idea. But, of course, that doesn't always happen. Yeah. There are a lot of package them, right? Like right. Yeah. Cellof- cellophane package. You can buy yeah. both together. So then you can open up the, the package and throw out the book and watch it. That's right. Maybe. So this is from Colin Toybean, who just had his um, book, Brooklyn, adapted for film. I-, I loved this quotation. He says, writing is so tentative and slow. It begins as not there at all and then gradually appears. You always remember how close to disappearing it was, how frail. Watching performers making it solid has a strange and almost inspiring power. It seems to have survived. Lovely. Yeah, and I'm, I'm, I really can relate to this quote as, as a fiction writer, and then I, I'm wondering if the memoirists on the panel feel the same way because, you know, you have survived your people. But the idea that somehow film is a more enduring artifact of experience is interesting. You know, I think that it must be eerie, a different kind of eerie, or surreal as a memoirist because there are two layers, right? Like uh, there's a movie made about your book and there's a movie made about your life, right? So do you, does this still resonate for you? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I was interested. Annie Prue says, you know, how strange it is to, you know, that you, you write these things and then there it is. It's in a whole different stratosphere of strange when it's not just based on your book, but it's your life. So, you know, Reese is walking around saying that she's Cheryl Strayed. You know, and and then and she's also, you know, like I was on the side and like I'm standing, you know, five feet from this woman who's reenacting 
you know, the biggest, hardest things of my life. You know, she's actually reenacting. The scene where um, Reese shows up at the hospital and her mom's dead, or my mom, or I don't know who anymore. We're like her. (laughs) And it always makes me cry because it's really, it's really actually replicates my memory, my, my real memory of it. Like, that's what, how I wrote it. That's how they played it. It's very direct, and uh, it's beautiful and unbearable and the most surreal experience of my life. And so there is a way, too, that, uh, you know, I, by the time The Wild came out, because Wild did well as a book, and I was like, well, nobody is left to buy my book. But it turns out a lot more people see movies than read books, I'm sad to tell you. And it delivered this, it delivered me, it delivered this book, this story, to a whole new audience, an international audience that is, you know, many times larger than the book already had. And so that was interesting, and that's what I'm thinking about here. It's like that in some ways, um, you know, a book survives, endures throughout time, but there's a way in which a movie plants itself into your psyche. Like when people, you know, people experience Reese as me, which is really interesting and strange. I think the thing about movies, you know, is like you can't control them. It's like pushing water. Most of them are not any good at all. And I mean, there's like, well, you know what I mean? Like when a movie like Brooklyn or like Wild, you know, or like Room, but like you mentioned, there are a thousand points where a movie can go wrong. A movie can be shot perfectly, acted perfectly, it's a great script, and then just be destroyed by the sound editor Mm -hmm. and be a completely worthless, you know, artifact and that will do nothing. And so just the opportunity for a movie to go wrong and be bad it's, it's amazing, you know, and I think that's, the, that's really just the majority of movies, not just memoirs made into movies, you know. Yeah. One more. This is from Nick Flynn, who, who Stephen mentioned, and this reminds me of what you were just talking about here, Cheryl, about the um, surreal moment where you were watching Reese Witherspoon enact your own mother's death. So he's seeing something similar here. He's at a table read for the movie the being Flynn based on his memoir another bullshit night in suck city and um Robert De Niro and uh Julianne Moore and Paul Dano are there and they're they're also sort of reenacting this death he says day of the dead dawn of the dead I sit off to one side pretending to watch myself pretending I'm here but I'm not not really my disembodied family risen from the grave sitting around a table laughing fucking tower of Babel I'm nearly erased I can really relate to this myself as a, as a fiction writer it, to, to the experience of sitting in a room while other people are you know, reenacting words that you've written, um, even though you know, it was an entirely invented story. I have this memory of sitting in a kitchen on set, and there are all kinds of people running around. I'm in this tiny room crammed with 30 people, and catering and grips and assistants and Everyone is running around, hairdressers, and everyone is working so intently. And the scene is being filmed again and again. It's like Asa Butterfield opening the door and Ethan Hawke answering the door, and they do that six or seven times. It's just this very simple scene. Um, But I just had this crazy out-of-body moment where I thought, nobody can see me here. I don't need to be here. But no one in this room would be here if it weren't for me. And it was, in, you know, it was entirely inconsequential and also consequential to the process. So that was a very strange state to be in. It requires a lot of um, management of one's sense of self. So I can relate to that. I wonder if anyone else can. That sense of erasure. 
Or, you know, it's interesting. I don't know if it's a racial... Or, or, for me, it was like an amplification. So the, the, the adorable blonde little girl you saw in the trailer is my daughter. So she played me. She played the child me. And Reese Witherspoon played the adult me. And so she got to play opposite Laura Dern. My daughter Bobby is named after my mother Bobby. So Bobby was playing Cheryl, and Laura was playing Bobby, and Reese was playing Cheryl, and I am Cheryl. And <laughs> it was very confusing. But... So my daughter was eight, and she was, you know, she wasn't just, like, cast in this film. Like, she didn't just get the role because she's related to me. Like, you know, she had to audition, and, you know, she really wanted to do it. And, you know, I talked to her about it because I was like, there are going to be some scenes that that you are having fun and happy with your mother, but there are going to be some, you know, scenes with this my abusive father, you know, cursing at her and holding his fist up to her face and saying, like, do you want a knuckle sandwich? And I knew that there was, you know, both darkness and light, obviously, in in my childhood, and she would have to act that out. And she was like, yes, I want to do it. But there we are on the set, and we're in this freezing cold house, and my daughter over and over again is having to sit at this breakfast table eating scrambled eggs, and this man is holding his fist up to her face and and threatening her and saying, do you want a knuckle sandwich? And then he's chasing Laura Dern out into the night, and she's gathering my daughter and this little boy who played my brother out, and they're running into the rain, and it it really was absolutely freezing when we were shooting, and they're running barefoot into the rain over and over again, and she's putting them into the car, and then my daughter is doctoring Laura's bloodied eye, and, um, oh gosh, that was, it was so hard to see that, and I was so worried about my daughter during these scenes, so every time the director would say cut, my husband and I would swoop in and be like, okay, Bobby, this is just pretend, you know, he's, and the guy would be like, I'm really a nice guy, you know, (laughs) and, um, she also made that arrangement with him because he's like, you fucking cunt, you fucking whore, you know. And she's like, every time you say a swear word, you owe me a dollar. So, like, at the end, he had to pay her all this money. But um, <laughs> So I kept saying to her, it's just pretend. And she finally was like, you guys, I know, I know. I'm an actress. It's pretend. This isn't really happening. And, you know, she all but banned us from the set, you know. But what was a beautiful moment is then when I knew my daughter was okay, Suddenly, it occurred to me in a really like kind of bone-shaking way that that was my that was my life. Like that actually happened to me. Like that was not pretend, and nobody yelled cut. And that was really actually my life. And my daughter was showing it to me, and I'd never seen it. So it was it was like it was like the truest thing. Like it was like the truest memory of my childhood. It was my daughter showing it to me. And, and what was strange about that truth is showing me that, like, she, di- she didn't get to ha- She didn't have that life. Like, her life is different because of my life. And it was really, a, like, a really unbelievably powerful thing. So I'm wondering, Jennifer, having had the experience now of working on your own screenplay, would you have made that choice? From the beginning, if you knew that you could ask for that, that privilege. I would like to say it is impossible to follow what Cheryl said with <laughs> something remotely fascinating, but I'm going to try. Let's see. I think what Cheryl said before, or what Reese said to Cheryl about, you know, organi- it's, it's like organizing your own life is very hard to do in a book. 
or organizing your story, right, in a way. And then to do it with enough distance to say, this scene is what needs to be cut. This scene is what needs to go in. This, cause what I, because moments that I found I couldn't leave were the moments that, of course, you can leave. No one cares about you know X, Y, and Z. Um, so I found actually, and again, not as surreal at all, but sitting, we had a reading sitting around the table at Sting's house, just as a side note. And you know, all these people were reading the script that um, came in. And I was thinking, wow, that's like, and, and people were laughing at parts. I mean, the, the, the story is a little bit funny, too, even as, as tragic as it is. And I was thinking that I didn't mean that to be funny. Or, you know, and it was like, I don't want to, there were so many good parts of the script. But it was like, a rabbi and a priest say I do. And, you know, it was things that, you know, you just didn't imagine. And I thought, okay, I'll just give myself over to it. I saw Dr. O talk once, and he said, just with Hollywood, take the money and run. And I was like, okay, not a ton of money yet, but I'll take it and run. And, but I'm here at this table at the same time. So I was very lucky to be invited into this, like, profound conversation that went on for several hours that deepened things. And because of that conversation, you know, about the politics of adoption, about these issues of race and class, about my own personal experience and some of the horrible things that had happened to me, I think I was able to sort of layer what was already there. But I think from the beginning, I don't know if I would have ended up with as good of a script as we did really end up with. I mean, I think. I, th I think the thing that, that is tricky about it is that it's, it's this very complicated blend of comedy and drama, which is tough to get right, but also, like, there's something about Jennifer's writing that has, like, a very specific, unique tone, and it's hard to hit it, and at a certain point, it was just kind of like, well, who's the person who can get that tone? It was funny, after this reading at Sting's house, I get this email from Rachel Weiss, and she's like, can I call you? And I'm thinking... Sure, you know, and then the phone rings, and she's like, is it a bad time? I can call back, you know, and I, no, of course. So she was talking about the tone, and she's like, when I read the book, that's not what I was feeling, so can we talk about tone? And it was really interesting. You know, I teach writing, um, and we talk about those things all the time, but tone matters so much to the experience of the viewer, I mean, the experience of the reader, but also the experience of the viewer. I mean, seeing all these has been so moving in a lot of ways, but that's, it's tonal. And so it's really important because, <laughs> and the person who was acting as the director at that time, and this was also very illuminating, said at the end of this, I hope you don't kill me for saying this, but he said, I'm really seeing how bad this movie can be. <laughs> so that yeah. was um, scary. No, I mean, I mean yeah. But I do think it's like building tone with images is so different than building tone with words. And I, I'm curious too, Cheryl, actually, what your experience was like working with Jean-Marc Vallée. Yeah. Because I think that he, the tone that he created mm -hmm. was just magical. And yeah. I think it's, I, I mean, I haven't, it's, it's hard to know how one does that, but it's a feeling the way that the feeling of creating a tone on the pages, it's a different um, execution. But it's not yeah. sad, all, I mean, just like your book, it can't be relentlessly sad. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. and anyway. Yeah, no, so Jean-Marc Vallée, right, I think he really got the tone. How many of you have seen the movie Wild? So you see, wow, <laughs> okay, thank you. You should read the book, too. But, no, Jean-Marc Vallée, from the moment I met him, I knew we were kindred spirits. We have a very similar aesthetic, and he's very emotional and, and poetic. And, and you, did you notice how literary the film was? I mean, it was such a literary film. I mean, you know, actually, like, you know, he's quoting all these writers and so forth. I love, I mean, really, the trailer begins with Emily Dickinson. I love that. But also, you know, he... He was able to capture 
the emotional tenor of the book and use image, not always just wor- words, but really image and the way he did these, mem- you know, Reese's memory, you know, my memories, when I would remember being a child or remember the way he constructed those, I thought was incredibly literary and totally on point. I do think that adaptations tend to be somewhat funnier than books. Right? Like, I remember the screen, uh, the screenwriters and directors telling me that they didn't want to make misery porn and that it would have been very easy for them to do that with <laughs> my book. So, um, yeah, I think that the tone does sometimes have to shift a little bit, right, to accommodate a bit more. I'm wondering what choices writers have in this process. I mean, I'm hearing so many different kinds of experiences here, but because Rachel Weiss decided to call you up and say, hey, do you want to write the screenplay? You were able to do that, right? Nobody called Stephen and asked him to do that. Maybe he would have said, Stephen's gotten a lot of other calls, I just want to say. Yeah, I mean, like, you got it. I'm just saying, it's not... But so do writers have choices in this process? When someone calls you up and says, hey, I want to make a film out of your movie, what can you say but, okay? Are there there choices? You can say no, that's the main choice. You can say no, I don't, I mean... And, and people do. I think that authors that say no tend to be authors that have already made a fair amount of money. Right, or they're rich. Or they're rich. It's not, it's not really Seriously. a logical or reasonable thing to do if you're, like, making 20 grand a year or 30 grand a year. Like, that's just, it's a little, it would just be kind of absurd. But I don't know. Like, I was never going to be <coughs> upset, though, with the movie that was made. I always understood that the movie is a different work of art. The author of the movie is the director, and that they're doing, they're making their own thing. Right, you say um, in this piece that you wrote for Vulture, well, basically that you would do it again in a heartbeat, right, given the opportunity to do that again. Is there anything that anyone on the panel would have done differently, given the opportunity? I mean, gosh. I don't know, it's hard to say because there are a couple of things that I that I think in kind of the the development process with the original script, but at the, the same time, I think that we ended up with a with a really great script. So it's it's hard to say. I mean, I guess the the only thing that that is both like a blessing and a curse about making a movie is that there's a lot of decision makers, and usually there are two or three decision makers who have all the power, right. and so you're very much at the whim of a decision maker who you know, who is either a director or a movie star. And I think in our case, we are very lucky that we have a movie star who is incredibly smart and incredibly, um, and has incredibly good taste. But a, a lot of times that's, that's not the case. Right. Yeah. yeah. And what about um, just general advice for people who might be in the same position, right? They're going to get the phone call tomorrow. I want to make a, a movie out of your film, is there some way to prepare people, either practically or emotionally, for that kind of experience? Well, I think it's really important to remember what Jennifer began by saying, that that her experience is the typical one. A lot of people get very excited when they hear, I mean, I've I've, I've watched countless friends, uh, you know, have their books optioned by, you know, fill in the blank, and then they spend the next four years explaining why so-and-so didn't actually make the film, you know, because it usually doesn't get made. So Wild came out in 2012, March of 2012. It was in production by October of 2013. So it happened really fast. But all along that way, that, that year and a half sort of between those two dates, Nick Hornby and I would email each other. And every time something good happened, you know, like, oh, it's this or that. And then I'd be excited and he'd be like, sorry, 
to you know bum me out, Cheryl, but there's still like I give it like 13% chance of ever actually happening. And then another good thing would happen. He'd go, okay, now it's 21%. And then even the night before we began shooting, I emailed him. And I said, Nick, nanny nanny boo boo, it's, you know, 100%. He goes, no, it's not. It's 99%. <laughs> He's like, something could happen before tomorrow morning. And it's true. And he said, and it has. And that's what's so funny when Brooklyn came out. So he wrote both Brooklyn and Wild and the screenplays. And when, you know, when, when Brooklyn was about to come out, he emailed me. He said, he spent, you know, years trying to make that happen. And, you know, wild happened at lightning speed. And you can't guess. You, you, can't, you can't necessarily predict how that path is going to go. Yeah. No, when I was an intern, my boss was trying to make The Danish Girl, and that was eight years ago. I think that there are movies that take 10, 13 years to get made, and sometimes it's for good reasons, and sometimes it's for bad reasons, and sometimes you end up with a movie that's better than the movie that it would have been, and sometimes you don't, but it's just hard to tell. Yeah. Well, one choice you can make is to allow your movie to be adapted and then to make your own movie about that adaptation, as Stephen did. So I want to share with you um, the trailer for that movie called After Adderall. James Franco wants to buy the rights to your memoir. He wants to buy the rights. He wants to option the rights. Well, he already has that option. Everybody has that option. He doesn't want anybody else to have that option. That's what an option is. James Franco. James Franco. James Franco. It's quite possibly the best thing that's ever happened to you. So you're acting my book for a student film. Student films don't cost two million dollars. I'm looking for a reading of the Adderall Diaries. You're in the wrong movie. Remember when you thought this movie was about you? I thought it was a movie about a movie being made about me. You published a book that no longer represents who you are. His whole life is a series of aftershocks based on an earthquake he can't remember. The saddest thing I've ever heard. What's the difference between memoir and life? I'm an agent, not a philosopher. If it comes from an authentic place, it's right. Just like that, spear my tuna fish with your harpoon. I don't know what it's about. I'm off on a tangent. When someone says they like a book you've written, they're saying they like who you used to be. It's an insult. Writers are such candy asses. I believe he's saying you're a candy ass, Steve. You'll never be a real person until you learn how to exist in someone else's story. What does that even mean? Caring about someone is hard. The basic question is not, am I lovable, but am I capable of love? I write because I want people to care about me, but I don't want to care that they care about me. You have to be careful who you pretend to be, because you are who you pretend to be. What's going to happen? Everything. saw the Adderall Diaries at the premiere at Tribeca, which I wasn't invited to, actually. Um, but, I, but, I, but I complained, and they gave in, and they gave me a couple tickets. Uh, but I saw the movie at the premiere and at Tribeca April 15th or so of last year, and I was like, eh, you know. And then a week passed, and then this script just started pouring out of me. It took me two weeks to write the script, and it felt so good. But, I mean, writing, it's like, I don't really know how I feel about anything until I start writing and like 
I know that I feel strongly about something because I'm writing about it, not the other way around, you know? And then I was like, okay, if my camera, you know, I worked with a lot of film people before, I was like, okay, my camera guy can do it, and if I can find a female actress, because it's a leading actress, is actually, you can't tell from the, the trailer, but she's it's pretty much a female, equal lead. I thought if I can find a good female lead, which I figured would take about a year, because I've made movies before, and I didn't think I'd be able to find this person, especially because I made the movie for $10,000, so I only had a, this very small budget. I thought I can find that person, and then, I, yeah, I think I auditioned like four or five people casually, and this person, like there she was, and I was like, oh. And then the, the cinematographer was like, yeah, I can do it if we do it now. I'm like, okay. So it just happened that way. You know, I saw the movie less than a year ago, and now I've got a movie inspired by that movie 10, 11 months later, and it's just, it was just the inspiration. It's been great, but it wasn't like, it wasn't like, I'm like, I'm going to reclaim. Right. You know, yeah. it's just like this, I, this is what I was inspired to do, you know? Yeah. I mean, you just make your art, and, you know, that's how I started The Rumpus, and I, I just kind of go wherever, I'm not a very focused laser, you know? Mm-hmm. I'm just kind of, I can kind of go wherever, whatever yeah. direction I go. Well, I wish that I knew how to make a movie, but I, I feel as though there is, the process of adaptation is so sort of shaking that it does require some sort of new artistic understanding, you know, some kind of, I don't know, some new uh, process for, for understanding the process that you've been through. What questions do you guys have for the panelists? Yeah. So I'm supposed to repeat the questions. After you've had your book made into a movie, um, how does it change how you approach your next book? Yeah, I don't think it does. You know, I mean, I just, you know, whatever you're inspired to do, you do. Yeah, no, I, I don't think I've ever been really impacted that way at, at all, you know? Like, when, when the inspiration arrives to write something, I'm always grateful, whatever, whatever that is, and I tend to follow it because... I, whenever I'm writing something, I'm, I'm in a race against my own enthusiasm, so I don't question it. If it comes, I just start writing. You know, you want to be, hopefully you're sitting at the bus stop, you know, when the inspiration bus pulls in to pick people up. So. Yeah. yeah, I would say the same thing. Yeah, I think I'm working on my second novel now, and I think, um, you know, the experience has um, changed the way that I write, just in the sense of now I have to sort of ask, even though, of course, the odds of, you know, this magical experience happening ever again are nil, but you know, is this filmable, you know? And so I realized as I was writing this book that it's entirely unfilmable because at one point the narrator of the novel was mute, could not talk. So I thought, oh, darn, I guess Hollywood isn't coming. So, you know, I think you you sort of have to ask those questions, but um, they're sort of unanswerable, right? Because the odds of movies being made um, from your book are pretty small. But but I think it does, for me at least, change um, uh, a little bit of a sense of the, the sort of, world building and scene building that happens I, I edited a magazine that is very concerned with whether or not the articles are uh, filmable or not epic magazine you know we have like a hundred percent track record of having everything optioned you know oh. Argo is ours based on our article and stuff and but you realize it's such a different process I'm like okay these people are journalists but they're not really creative writers you know what I mean it's not it's not really the same thing yeah. I wouldn't really want to do that. Right. Right. questions? Way in the back? Yeah, I was curious. 
Sure. So the question, I think, is how can you make sure when you're first publishing a book that if the movie is going to, the book is going to be optioned, that you would be involved? So even at the stage before an option would happen, at the time that you're signing a contract for a novel, say. Yeah. Yeah, One piece of advice I would really give is, you know, most of us writers, myself included, you know, when I was first talking to Reese about her optioning the book, you know, it was really interesting to me to hear the language that people talk to me about Reese optioning. They're like, wow, did did you know that, like, Reese was going to option your book? I'm like, yeah, it was my choice. You know what I mean? I think that there's a uh, this funny dynamic that happens where writers were so sort of beaten down by society that we think like, oh, if a movie star wants to option my book, she gets to. And and you need to remember that it, it is your book and you get to decide what happens to it. You get to decide who you make contracts with and what those contracts say. And, you know, it really is important that you do not um, sort of shrink in the face of those negotiations, that you account for whatever kind of relationship that you want. You know, I didn't fight to adapt Wild because I was busy with my own life and doing other things, and, you know, they wanted it to happen really fast. And also, I kind of agreed with them about, you know, maybe I wouldn't be the best person to adapt that book. But I think for a different kind of book, like a novel, I would absolutely say, no, I'm, I'm the writer, you know, and basically love it or leave it, you know. And I, now that I've been through the movie process, I can say that with some authority, because I did, I did you know, work on the script as well. You know, I, I was, obviously Nick wrote the script, but, you know, I was, I weighed in, I was a consultant. And, you know, I think it's just really important to remember um, that you that you do have a that this isn't being done to you, that you are, you know, in partnership and making a contract. And so provide for yourself. And, um, you know, one of the things I did, I wasn't the writer, but I was I was a consultant and I was, you know, paid for that and involved in it. And that was, a you know, an agreed upon um, situation. And so advocate for yourself. Don't just feel like, oh, my God, this amazing thing happened to me. Thank you. Realize that, as Eleanor said, none of this would be there if it weren't for the words that you'd written. And I think really good movie, you know, even when you're working with good people, they know that, too. I mean, they know that you're the person who wrote this book it's, and that you know that material, you know, and that without you, as you said, they, they wouldn't be there. So I think that's really kind of wonderful advice, actually. So much of it is like knowing what you're okay with and what's important to you. And I think that's hard for people, mm-hmm. you know, like, do you really care if the, if the book or the movie is different from the book? You can't mm-hmm. control if the movie's good or not. Like, no matter what your contract says, the movie's most likely not going to be that good, you know? <laughs> but, you know, what's important to you? Is it important to you to be consulted? You know, yeah. when you're, you said when you're selling a book, well, do you want to be involved in the cover design? Because you can put that, you can insist on that, you know, or not. I mean, but they'll, they'll fight back on it, and you might limit some other options. You might get less for your book. You might not sell the book mm-hmm. to, a, a movie might not be made of the book if you're intransigent. You know, just, but, you know, you have to know what's important to you going in, you know. Yeah, I do think that that's hard. You know, I think because I'd been disappointed a couple of times, I was really eager to sign um, the rights over no matter what. And I think if I had that to do again, I would be more assertive, um, as Cheryl is suggesting, um, in terms of you know, setting some of those boundaries, even if you don't want to be involved necessarily. Setting the boundaries and being a part of that conversation and being asked to be in the loop, you know, I think is important. But, yeah, there are clauses for that, and if not, you can invent the clause. Um, 
Well, it's interesting, you know, Stephen says he wasn't invited to his own premiere, which just utterly it is shocking. But it's, it just reminded me, I didn't, I didn't come to need to have this contractually guaranteed, but in my contract with Reese was two tickets to the premiere and first class round trip tickets to the wherever the world premiere was. Other questions? Yeah, and what ways do producers find books in the first place? I mean, there's, there's a lot. There are a lot of different ways. A lot of kind of bigger companies will have book scouts that work with publishers and work with literary agents. I mean, I I found Jennifer's in an unusual way because I was her student, but I've also found books and articles just by you know meeting constantly with with agents and finding out what they've got that's coming out. And then I also look at NetGalley a lot and kind of see what's coming up. But it's just a lot of scouting and then just having relationships with agents. And because I also have come from the lit world, just having relationships with writers and finding out what they're working on. I think it's really interesting when you were saying that more and more books are being adapted and used. And people, in, in the way we are now informationally, you know, with tele- the golden age of television, people are dying for content. You know, I was just at my friends who are TV writers. There are books everywhere. They never read them, by the way. <laughs> but um, <laughs> they're just dying for content and because there's so much to be filled right now. It's kind of a wonderful time. It's just kind of getting your book or your story to, or your piece to the right person at the right time. And hopefully you're surrounded by people who can help with that, but it doesn't always work like that. And sometimes it has yeah. to be the right three people or whatever, right? So that's yeah. that sort of magical equation. For me, um, the, the filmmakers had read the, a review of the book and read the book and liked the book and had wanted to make a movie set in the 1980s in New York anyway, so it was a really good fit for them. And then over here, a producer was a friend of a friend who had just been handed the book by my friend, and they connected and had a conversation. They said, oh, I'm reading that book too. Let's try to see if the rights are available. So, you know, mm-hmm. people outside of AWP, I guess a couple of them do read books too and so they're having conversations in the way um, that, that lots of readers do and so you know it, it is I think quite reassuring you know in a certain way to know that literature has an impact on, on people enough that they want to continue telling that story um, so they're just you know regular people who are reading books and uh, maybe they're actively seeking them out and maybe they just it's a, a happy accident. Also I want to say that there, there are different kinds of people you know, they're the sort of driving force behind making movies and TV. So in my case, you know, it was an actress who saw that this was going to be an amazing role for herself. And, you know, she was also a producer and, you know, had this production company, but she was really looking for roles, you know, as, a, as an actor. And, you know, sometimes producers, you know, will option a book, sometimes directors, sometimes actors. I think another piece of advice is like, you know, one of the things that, that I knew right off the bat when I thought about bringing Wild to Hollywood was that it was going to be a great role for a woman. And I don't know if you've read the news lately. That's kind of, you know, rare. All those complicated women. And so, you know, like if you have a a book or, uh, you know, even sometimes a short story that, you know, is like really features a strong woman, there's so many actresses in Hollywood who are desperate for those roles. And they've learned that they have to go find them for themselves. And so, you know, and so think about, like, what, you know, what would this look like, you know, you know the, 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 sometimes the best route is, is through an, an actor who will then advocate, you know, somebody like Reese Witherspoon doesn't have a hard time getting people attached to her project. Um, but, you know, same with James Franco. I mean, not easy, but, you know, right, it, I think it helps to have, yeah, what'd you say? Yeah. Um, 
I'm gonna say like kind of the obvious pedantic thing that I know everybody agrees with already, but it's like the best way to get your movie or your book made into a movie is to write a good book. It's like to write the best book that you're capable of writing and focus on the writing. As a, and you know, have you ever been in like a panel where somebody said like, you know, what about like soccer moms in Tennessee? You know, and, and they're not a soccer mom, from, you know, they're somebody else and they're like, and what they're really saying is like, how do I write for people I don't respect? You know, how do I write something I don't want to read for people I don't respect? And it's like, that is not a successful way to get anything made. If you write the best book that you're capable of, which is different for everybody, that is more than anything else you can do is going to uh, increase your odds of your book being made into a movie. I know everybody knows that and it's stupid, but it's also so easy to forget. We forget those things so quickly. You, gotta, you have to focus on that, on your craft, and like, what is it that you want to read and writing, writing your own favorite book, you know? I think that might be all the time that we have. I'm looking at my watch now, and it's it's uh, it's uh, I'm still on the other coast. It's time to say goodbye. Thank you so much for coming, and thank you to our panelists. Thank you for tuning in to the AWP podcast series. For other podcasts, please visit our website at www.awpwriter.org.